Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here once again uh, with Chris Moyles. He's the complexity uh, professor of complexity and management at the Hertfordshire Business School at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. And uh, we are going to uh, discuss his latest book, uh, Complexity, a Key Idea for Business and Society. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me back. It's Chris Moles, by the way, not Chris could- Moyles. Moyles, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I am sorry. It's okay. Um, Chris Moles, not Moyles. Um, okay, so I, I guess we should start with, like, what was the impetus for, for, thi- for this book in particular? I mean, you have a, a great, um, you know, history of, of publishing on this topic of complexity. Yeah, um, what was the impetus for this, for this new book? Combination of factors. It was time I wrote one. I had been working on an idea uh, of seven types of something based on William Empson's book that I read when I was an undergraduate reading English literature. He wrote a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity. Right. So it seemed like a good framework to hang another a reprise of the complexity sciences and their implications for organizational life on that kind of idea. And um, when Ralph retired, and we had uh, 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 we should mention who, who Ralph is for the Ralph Stacy, who was the originator of the perspective called uh, complex responsive processes, along with Doug Griffin and Patricia Shaw, way back at the end of the nineteen nineties, and their work uh, produced a body of publications at the beginning of the two thousands. Uh, including a textbook, the last edition of which I um, I wrote with Ralph in 2016, I think. So the the textbook, the 2016 textbook is I don't know 550 pages long. It's the most comprehensive statement about what comprehend what complex responsive processes means in terms of sociological theory and organisational theory. So it was it was time to do a reprise of that. Ralph was retiring finally at the age of 75. And we had a celebration of his working life at a conference in 2019. And I did my presentation on seven types of uncertainty, I called it. So I had already started working on the book when Routledge approached me and asked me if I would do a book about complexity for their series, Key Ideas in Business Society, which is an interesting list, actually. It doesn't just include the usual things you'd expect to find for organizations, but has other interesting topics like surveillance or big data and hierarchy and other applied themes. So it was a combination of those two things, I think. Right. Yeah. And this, this um, is certainly a lot shorter than yes. the, uh, the, the longer textbook. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and I suppose summarizes some of the ideas into topics that are more familiar, right? The, the idea of, of self or communication or, or, or knowledge. Um, so I guess, I guess perhaps a little bit more accessible for people. Hope so. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so this, this, this key idea, this key idea of complexity, I mean, perhaps it's useful for our listeners who are, who are, new to this that <laughs> complexity is a word in common parlance and it has a, a particular meaning when we're using it here um 
so I wonder if we should start with that. Like, what what are we? How do how are we defining complex complexity in in this context? Okay, so so I'm not really thinking about complexity in the everyday sense of the word. Of course, things are complex. This is a different way of thinking about stability and change by drawing on complexity models, which are a, a minority discipline in the natural sciences. So there isn't just one complexity science. There are a variety of complexity sciences, which inform thinking in neurobiology, in zoology, in mapping traffic in towns, in meteorology. I guess one of the key complexity models that we experience on a daily basis is the weather forecast, for example, which is a non-linear model looking at millions of bits of data, which are then modeled probabilistically to see what the patterns of weather might be. And the further you go into the future, the more uncertain the prediction is. And even then, the prediction is a 40% chance of precipitation in two days' time or a 60% probability of precipitation. So it's never entirely accurate, although I would say um, that weather forecasts have got a lot better than they mm -hmm. used to be. But the further you go into the future, the less likely your prediction is going to be accurate. So, for example, I think the meteorological office has stopped forecasting ice cream summers in January because they just don't know. They just can't see that far ahead. So these models are, as I say, a minority discipline, but a substantial discipline in the natural sciences. And they have, um, they demonstrate a different uh, way of thinking about stability and change. So the complexity model that most interests us at the University of Hertfordshire is complex adaptive systems models, which are models programmed into computers where you have lots of different agents populated by large numbers of agents who interact with each other according to simple rules given them by the programmer. And when you give these agents simple rules, they produce global patterns of their interactions, which are not predictable or reducible to the simple rules that you programmed into them. If you like, they take on a life of their own. Mm. So this is a very different way of thinking about order and disorder, predictability and unpredictability than the way we normally think about organizations, where we think that we, if we want an organization to thrive, a group of clever people sit in a room together and make a strategy where they imagine an ideal end state in three to five years time. And then they count back in logical steps, milestones. And then the next three to five years are spent, theoretically at least, correcting to those logical milestones that we've imagined towards our ideal, ideal state. If you take the analogy from the complexity sciences, what happens, happens because of what all the agents are doing together. And all of that interaction will produce unpredictable things. Right. Yeah. So it puts you in a completely different territory of thinking about what happens when people come together to try and achieve something. Now, having said that, there are lots of different ways of taking up these insights from the complexity sciences, as I try and explore a bit in the book. So because management is something of an instrumental discipline, which loves tools and techniques, a number of scholars have taken up the complexity sciences to say, well, 
you can manage complexity this way. Here are the tools and techniques for managing complexity. Or you can decide whether something is simple, complicated, complex, or chaotic. And when you've made that decision, then you'll know how to manage. Right. At the University of Hertfordshire, we're not saying that we're right, but we do take a radical view of complexity, which is to say that there's nowhere to stand outside complex interaction because we're part of those interactions. Right. There's right. no God's eye view, if you like, which is not to say that one couldn't be more detached from what's going on. And even having, if you're a consultant, for example, you have a different set of interests from the people that you're working with in an organization. And that does give you a degree of detachment. But that's not the same as saying you can see objectively what's going on in an organization and you're not caught up in it yourself in some way. So the radical view that we take at the University of Hertfordshire is to think that if life is complex, it's complex, it's always complex. Even if it looks relatively simple, there's a dynamic complexity that's going on. And even a minor dig beneath the surface reveals all kinds of things are happening that if one pays attention closely enough, would convince one that life is always complex and things always come out of left field. Right, right. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. And, and you're, you're alluding there, of course, with the, the complex, complicated, um, simple and chaotic to the, to the Genevin framework, I assume. <laughs> well, actually, Ralph Stacey came up with something uh, called the Stacey diagram in the early 1990s, which he abandoned because he could see that he, you take up the radical insights from the complexity sciences. He was very unhappy with the kind of pacifying effect that his two-by-two two diagram, his rather sophisticated two-by-two two diagram, uh, was having on the audience it was talking to. So people were yeah. reassured that they could still choose, that life wasn't really that complex. They still had a, posi a privileged position, if you like, where they could take a view on complexity and then decide how to proceed. So actually, Ralph Stacey himself originally thought that organizations were complex adaptive system. And of course, the temptation then is to put yourself as the manager or as the consultant in the position of the programmer. You can give everybody else rules to follow, which then produces complexity deemed to be good. So there's also no, uh, there's no assurance from a perspective of complex responsive processes that complexity is necessarily good. You could say that what's going on in U Ukraine at the moment is pretty complex, but we wouldn't view that as a good thing. Right. So, so we have to take a view on the complexity that's happening and work out what we think about it. But complex organizing isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It's a thing to be inquired into. Right. Right, and so I, I think you're saying two, two, two things by this, by, by the, with this stance. One is that you can never be outside of it, so you can never like take a view and and sort of understand fully understand the context in which you're in. A, and then B, are you also saying even if you could, there would never be a time when you could describe your context as as being simple and entirely predictable? Exactly that. So. Social life does have a certain predictability about it, and there are some patterns that exists in, exist in society for long periods of time. So 
one of the examples that one of my colleagues used to give is a nun's habit, for example. Nuns have been wearing habits for hundreds of years, and that's a pattern that we recognize. Patterns of discrimination exist for hundreds of years. So the patriarchy, for example, men have oppressed women for hundreds of years. That pattern of oppression takes different forms and shows up in different ways, but it's a pattern in society that we recognize and persists for a long period of time. And if social life wasn't relatively predictable, we would never find our way in the world. I wouldn't have got to work this morning if, if social life isn't predictable to a, to a degree. But it's a, dynamic, it's a dynamic stability, if you like, that is achieved by people cooperating and competing together. Mm. We make social life relatively stable. Right, right. Okay. And is, is the, so is there, there never a case where you can say we've made this, you know, this situation is, is so stable that for purposes of getting on my, with my day, I can view it as being entirely predictable. So, for example, making, I don't know, a, a piece of toast, right, that I'm going to put butter on. Like, we can't say that I'm now engaged in a simple system that involves me and the toaster and that I have a highly predictable outcome of a cooked piece of toast um, at the end of this process. Of but, course. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, and we make our way through the day assuming that the world is stable. Okay. Until the toaster breaks. Right. Or you look in the <laughs> bread bin and discover that you've forgotten to buy the loaf or there's mold on the loaf. Yeah. Or you've run out of butter. Yeah. Right. Right. So, of course, we, every day we make hundreds of assumptions about the predictability of the world, and mostly they're accurate assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not the same as saying, I am now in a simple system, <laughs> right? Exactly. That's, that's highly predictable, right? Th that's yeah. e exactly right. So um, one of the examples that's often given of simple is following a recipe. Mm. But actually, I'm a bread maker, and there are all kinds of adjustments and responses and adaptations that I'm making when I'm making bread to the situation mm. I find myself mm. in. So if you like, I am the recipe. I'm not following anything. I am the recipe. I've yeah. internalized it to an extent that the bread and the water and the flour and I are part of an improvisation. Yeah. And we... Of course, I'm, I'm following patterns. I'm following um, st stably unstable rules, but I'm also responding in the moment to whether I think the dough has risen. So ordinarily, I'd leave it to rise for six to seven hours, but if it doesn't look like it should look after six to seven hours, I respond in a different way. Yeah, yeah. That's also the way that we move in the world. We assume that things are stable until they're not, and then we have to have a response to the new situation, to the breakdown situation that we find ourselves in. Right. And you used the phrase there, stably unstable. What do you mean by that? One of the interesting things about complex systems, and I'm using the word system, thinking about the complexity models, is, uh, is the paradox of stable instability or predictable unpredictability. So they produce, so a fractal pattern, for example, is an example from the complexity sciences where you can see a pattern is repeating itself 
in never quite the same way at all levels of scale. So these compl complex adaptive systems models have the quality of, of paradox about them, where local interaction of the agents produces the global pattern, but at the same time, the global pattern constrains how the agents can interact locally. Mm. Now, I'll give you an example of that from social life. So we're born into a world where there's already a play going on. We're born into a particular family at a particular time, often speaking a particular language or languages with a particular view of the world. So we are shaped by the global pattern, if you like. But it's not that we have no agency at all. So in taking up the language and taking up the worldview and interacting with others, we also contribute to the global pattern in our local interactions. So it's that paradox of local and global Mm. that's going on all the time, which produces patterns of predictable unpredictability and stable instability. Right. Sta stable instability. And, and, and I think another example from the book, which I liked, was um, we always know that the, I can't remember if it was starlings or the bird, but you know, we always know that birds will, will flock, but we don't know how they'll flock. But we can, we can reliably predict that they will flock. Yeah. Uh, and the difference then with that model of complexity is when it's modeled on a computer, at least, at least, all the agents are the same and they're behaving in the same way according to the same rules. So the only pattern you get is flocking. Now, if you make the agents different and you make that different agents behave in different ways, you get evolutionary behavior patterns that you couldn't have predicted and changes in the agents, which is mm. what natural selection is all about, which is what evolution is about. You know, species change in the evolutionary cycle. So that particular manifestation of complexity sciences has its own limitations. Right. Because of the uniformity of the agents and their behavior. Yeah, and that, that was something that I think that's one of the differences, right? When we when we step out of the system view to actual big human, is exactly. that is that we're being we're ch we're being changed by the process we're in, exactly as that. we're changing the process, right? E exactly that. So identity changes, language changes, conversation changes. We become new people in the interactions that we have with other people. Yeah, we become and, and something that, that took me, you know, again, I guess it's an, an arresting thought, if you like, and I think we touched on this in the last conversation, but the, the, to, to, to let go, can we let go of this idea of I'm a, I'm a fixed agent? That, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not Richard, I'm kind of this process of Richarding, right? I'm not a human, I'm a process yep. of humaning. And, yes. it, and it feels very disorientating, but when you, when you well, at least when I, think deeply about it, I do find it a very sort of powerful way to consider my existence. Yes. Uh, and if you merely reflect on the aging process, so the person you are now, you certainly recognize the Richard that you were 10 years ago, 15 mm. years ago, but you also recognize the difference. So we're both, here's, an, here's the paradox again, we're both similar and different. Mm. And I think the challenge of the aging process is not just to become a bundle of your habits. So the famous 
uh, pragmatic philosopher John Dewey said that we are our habits. And I think one of the difficulties of the aging process is that your habits are familiar to you and you're comfortable with them so you don't go beyond your habits. And particularly with the aging of the body, you feel sometimes less confident to go beyond your habits. And we become reduced, fixed selves, if you like. That's the danger of the aging process. Right. But that's an interesting way of thinking about the fixity of our existence is that mm. fixity in terms of a, a continuing set of processes, right? Mm. And that gives us another way to think about how we might intervene in our own existences to say, well, could I swap out a habit or... Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of those ways of swapping out, I guess, is re-narration stories. So we're, mm. we're also... Our identity comprises our stories about ourselves, but not just that, other people's stories about us. And that's why we have never, never have entire control over our stories, because we also figure in the stories of others. Yeah. And you might think of therapy as a process of re-narrating our stories about ourselves. Yeah. So I, I have some group analytic training and working in groups with people who have mental distress they often have quite fixed stories about themselves. And the, the importance of the group therapeutic process then is to help them um, develop some flexibility and nuance in their story or even to tell the story differently. Yeah. So that identity is able to change in that re-narrating process. That's also true in organizations, I think. So whatever we think culture might be, it's artifacts, ways of behaving, but it's also stories that we tell about this particular organization and what we stand for, what we believe in, what we think is important. That can also change, but it can also become very stuck, stuck and repetitive and unhelpful. Right, right. Um, and I think that's, a, yeah, and, and the fact that we're thinking about a habit as a, as a repeated thought in the form of a narrative mm. is is, a, is another interesting way to think about our, us as a collection of habits, right? Yeah. Not just and, brushing our teeth or taking certain actions on a repetitive basis, but having repetitive thought. Yeah. Uh, and John Dewey was very clear about habits that actually they're helpful shortcuts. But sometimes they can be unhelpful if we're facing a new situation where the old habit is no longer applicable. Mm. So yeah. if we just abandon all, well, it's impossible, but imagine that you could just abandon all your habits. It would be impossible to get through your day yeah. because your, your habits are helpful. Yeah. But sometimes they can be constraining because every day we face new situations and simply to respond in the habituated way may or may not be helpful. Right. Right. I'm just thinking of a baby as you spoke to that, right? That a baby only becomes, you could say that a baby only becomes, well, as a developing human only becomes functional through the acquisition of habits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm going through the experience at the moment. I have two small grandchildren. I'm watching my kids deal with sleep patterns and the babies are changing all the time. So the habit that you get into of putting the child to bed and expecting to sleep works for about three or four days until it doesn't work anymore. Right. And then you have to try something different. Yeah, exactly. I've got a one five-year-old son who's regressing into, so yeah, all the things that worked when he was younger and now not working for some reason. Exactly um, that. Yeah. Um, good. Now, the other thing that 
so we just spoke to, we spoke about like thinking about our organization uh, in terms of the the narratives that individuals hold in that organization and you said something interesting in the book which which I'm not sure I fully understood which is why it's good to have you here now is that there's there's a there's a danger of thinking about um the organization as I think I'm getting this right as an aggregation of the individual you know narratives of each agent right and that that can be problematic like what so why because because of course we have all sorts of tools right now that can capture the narratives of individuals in surveys and so on and then you know other tools to to somehow aggregate the picture based on on that data so yeah what what's the problem with that well i suppose um so going back to the complexity models that we're talking about when you remember that i was talking about the global pattern emerges from the dynamic in local interactions so you've got local mm. that glo- local global paradox so too there's been a move over the last 3 or 4 decades to become we become highly individualized in the way that we understand the world and i think one of the one of the responses to dealing with constant uncertainty is to put the responsibility on the individual so you might be sent off on well-being courses or resilience training or you know be encouraged to be positive or whatever which is the theory of the world that the global pattern emerges simply from the aggregation of all these different atoms and it links back to that point that we were making earlier if you're working with a theory of stability and change that i was describing where the agents are capable of changing in response to other agencies you're never just a, a discrete unit unaffected by your interactions with others so you'll only get a partial view of the aggregation of atoms what you don't get then is a sense of what happens in the ensemble performance on the dynamics between people which also affect the people in the interaction mm. yeah and i and guess i, I, I don't think i don't think an organization is ever an aggregation of individual stories i think the stories we tell are shared they're understood differently by each individual because we have a different life history but we're talking about collective stories that we tell about us Ibrahim but you can only ever understand that through the or can you through the expression of an individual so is, is there any way to get at those collective stories well, well again i think it's important to hang on to the paradox so the the founder of the institute of group analysis was a guy called fuchs who was a contemporary of the sociologist norbert elias he was a german jewish refugee and he was very concerned to think about uh different ways of cooperating and competing that didn't lead to totalitarianism because of his very traumatic experience of what happened in Nazi Germany and he was convinced that we can only become full selves in a group and he wanted to work with that paradox that I'm talking about of course the therapeutic groups he set up were about individual liberation but accepting that we are social through and through and interdependent 
And one of the metaphors that he used um, of thinking about group process was the idea of resonance. It's an idea taken from physics where particles resonate with each other and, and affect each other in ways which are incalculable. Mm. So he was trying to apply this to the group situation where a group is a combination of individuals who are able at the same time to have shared experience. And the image that he used for resonance was of wind chimes. So groups experienced shared phenomena like a wind passing through wind chimes, but each of the individuals in the group resonates to their own note because they're all different lengths. So you can see what he's trying to get at there. Mm. There is something common about human experience, but it's experienced individually uniquely. Mm. So it's got that paradox of generality and individuality at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I guess the, the question is, if I think about it from an organizational standpoint, and even as <laughs> this was so fascinating about com- complexity, I find myself con- constantly kind of under, undercutting my own thought process from the perspective of the philosophy. But just for a second, if we could stand outside of an organization and we wanted to inquire into what these you know, collective narratives were to give us kind of a greater insight into the organization, how we might make a difference within it. Um, and but we've only got access to the individual wind chimes and what, how they're you know how they're resonating, how they're vibrating. You know, is is there some way of like understanding you know the nature of the wind in this metaphor? Um, well, that's that, what you're trying to think help about. That's, yeah. that's what you're trying to think. That's exactly what you're trying to think about as a manager, as a researcher mm. manager, particularly if you're joining new to an organisation mm. or as a consultant. So the I do much less consultancy these days, but. In the days when I did a lot of consultancy, I was always paying attention to what stories people were telling me about the organization when I joined it to do a piece of consultancy. Mm. How do they talk about themselves? How do they try and recruit me into this narrative? Um, Who's in, who's out? Who are the good guys, supposedly? What am I being invited? What kind of game am I being invited into here? Uh, and there's never just one narrative. Is that there are sometimes yeah. competing yeah. narratives yeah. in organisations? Always competing narratives, I would say, in organisations, depending upon the groups. So that so there are competing interests in 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 organisations, and the kind of orthodoxy is to invite everybody to cohere and line up and point in the di- in the same direction. So we all share the same values which is true to a degree, but values are often described at such a level of generality that anybody could believe in them, to be honest. Yeah. But actually the reality of organizational life is it's competitive, it's uplifting, it's demoralizing, it provokes strong feelings in us. Sometimes we try and put one over on other people. Sometimes you want to get alongside them and help them. And it's not always in our control what we're doing. Some other group who also have good motives cut across what we're doing because of what they're trying to achieve. And they may not even want to cut across what we're doing, but it just happens. So we have to deal with it. So the idea of oneness, I think, is a, is, is a fantasy of organizational life. 
Mm. I'm not arguing against trying to achieve coherence. Of course, organizations need to cohere if they're going to produce what they need to produce. But it's a kind of um, it's a kind of fantasy of oneness. Mm. So we need a good enough coherence to take the next step together. Right, right. And and is one of the ways that we can, as an agent, you know, in in the, in that environment, is it about sort of to, to your point earlier, somehow like sniffing the wind, right? Like getting just although we can never see it, we can get some indications of what the collective story might be based on what individuals are saying. So it's, it's all it's it's it. Yeah, you're always guessing at it, but you can't ever really know it. You have to. The competing narratives in any organization, we can only keep exploring them and make yeah. the best decision that we can at the time, given what we understand to be going on. And that links very closely to the idea of reflective space. So if we don't spend any time thinking about what we're doing and talking about what we're doing, we're never going to get access to some of those broader patterns that are happening in organizations which might be unhelpful. Right. So in, in many organizations, there's a huge emphasis on delivery. Yeah. So organizations are, are kind of um, parcel delivering organizations, <laughs> Amazon Prime or something like that. Mm. And very little emphasis on reflecting with no end in view. What's going on? What do we think we're doing? What's important to us? Who are we? What do we think we're doing? That's regarded as a luxury we can't afford or likely to open a can of worms. And of course yeah. it might. And that's the danger of it. So let's just keep things stable. Let's stick to the agenda. We'll have 10 minutes on this item. We'll have five minutes on that item. Any other business? Okay, let's move on. Mm. And I think maybe the pandemic has made that worse. So if you like, one of the negative consequences of the pandemic is politics has not disappeared from organization, but it's been attenuated a lot. That ability to make sense of what's going on, gossiping over the coffee maker in the corridors, in the car park, making alliances, trying to reinterpret what's going on, which you have to do. Uh, in the pandemic very deliberately by reaching out to somebody and saying, can we have a Zoom call to discuss yeah. that last meeting? Whereas ordinarily when people are in organizations together, they do that naturally. Yeah. 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 No, that, 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 that makes sense. But aren't you sort of, isn't there a danger here that you're, you're kind of, you're contradicting to yourself? Cause what one point you say, you, you say, you know, we've got, there exists this idea of managerialism that something that's worked in one context is going to work in another. Mm. Um, whereas the reality is we live in these complex environments, but couldn't you apply the same art argument to what you're just saying, right? You've had some positive experience, let's say with this reflective inquiring practice in certain organizations. And now you're saying, why don't you try it in your organization? Isn't that, isn't that the same thing? Well, I, I, I'm not making any claim that it always works. And I'm not always. I'm not making a claim that it works for the good. So some people can use these reflective spaces to promote their own interests. Right. So um, there's nothing necessarily pr 
productive for organizations in reflection and reflexivity. But you can't change habits unless you undertake it. So it, it's again a paradox. I've just been reading Edward Slingerland's book, Trying Not to Try. And he's, he's a, uh, an expert on ancient Chinese philosophy. And he speaks to exactly the paradox that I'm interested in. On the one hand, if you don't reflect and encourage people to be reflexive, then your chances of having any insight into what's going on are reduced. But just because you do do it doesn't mean that necessarily you can get on top of things and it will be productive. Right. Of course, because I run a doctoral program where we encourage people to take what they're doing at work seriously, to think about it, to discuss it, to study it, to write about it. I do think on balance, it's a better way of managing and organizing. So I do take a position on it, but I'm not offering any guarantees. Right. Right. Can't do it. Can't not, can't not do it. Can't claim that because you're doing it, it's going to lead to something good. And that's my objection to the, a number of writers who write about complexity who seem to imply that complexity is good or that you can unleash complexity in an organization and that would be beneficial. As I'm saying organizations are complex and we need to make up our minds about whether it's good or not for us. Right. Yeah. I mean, just that, I mean, it's uh, fatuous to consider based on your perspective that one could unleash complexity, right? It's, exactly. Yeah. That, that's yeah. exactly my point. But there are a number of writers who do exactly that. If you want complexity of the right kind in your organization, then do this, follow simple rules or, you know, whatever. Right, right, right. Um, and, and I suppose your position here, as you say, is that in complexity, you know, we're always in complexity. Uh, and, and, and what I guess, and if we want to change habits, and, and I, yeah, so let's, let's link. And are, we, are, you sort of, are you making a connection there or a claim there that complexity manifests as habits or, and that the, the, the reflection allows us to inquire into our habits and enable them to change, change them? Exactly. It gives you slighter, greater, slightly greater agency to think about whether this habit is helping us or not. Yeah. And even in the noticing of a habit, you, you will already have a different attitude to that habit. You yeah. have some distance from it and it might enable you to do something about it. So right. for example, to notice whenever this team, our team, becomes a bit uncertain, do you notice that we rush to write an agenda or an action plan? What would happen if we didn't rush to write an action, time, action plan every time we were anxious? What might happen if we sat with the anxiety for a bit longer? Might it lead to a different habit that was slightly more productive? Right, right. Yeah. And, and well, if this just reminds me of another example in the book, then that um, I think I'm right. So you, you were co-facilitating one of, uh, you know, a reflective process and you started to sense that this was actually exacerbating a bullying problem in the organization. And so you pulled out of it. Is, and it, it is that because in this case, the context wasn't there for people to inquire into their habits. Like, why, did it, why wasn't it successful? I suppose. I, I suppose I was worried that 
doing what we were doing was enabling the managers who needed to deal with the problem not to deal with it. Okay. So instead of taking action, they'd say, look, we're taking this seriously because we've got this group running. But with what the group was discussing, it seemed to me to suggest actions that managers needed to take. So there's nothing, um, I think there can be an implication that if we talk about everything being complex, then there's nothing we can do. Mm. And I'm certainly not taking that position. Before we started this interview, you talked about uh, the ethics of the situation. So I think there is an ethical implication in talking about what's going on then to see what it requires of us to move things on or to make an intervention to take a position what i'm not advocating is for people sit around saying oh it's all very complex there's nothing we can do because whatever we do it'll still be complex yeah my, my position is it's all very complex and you're still required to act sometimes, depending on what your judgment is about your responsibility. And then you have to deal with the consequences of that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that, because if I'm honest, there are a few times reading the book where I had exactly that impulse. I was like, oh, fucking Well, you know, is there really nothing? Is everything so, you know, and I wanted to put the book down because I got kind of frustrated that, um, it, yeah, exactly. That was where my mind led to a place of, oh, well, it's all just so complex. So what's the point? Why am I even reading the book? Like, what, what, why not why, like, get out of bed? And then, and then I had to sort of steal myself to get back to the book a couple of times. But so, so, so yeah, it's good that you've articulated that, that I think even though trying- it's all complex, we may still sometimes be called upon to take some ethical And action. we are. All, all that I'm saying is, is this is what we're already doing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Winston Churchill's definition of history, one damn thing after another. So we're in a difficult situation. Let's talk about it and think about it a bit. Then we're required to act. Then mm. we're required to deal with the responsibilities that action has, has caused. So yeah. one thing leads to another. It never stops. It's one damn thing after another. that you're, And you're always responsible, particularly if you have a key responsibility in an organization like being head of a team or being the director or the chief executive or, or whatever, there's no escaping the responsibility. And in the UK, I'm sure you have lots of non-UK listeners, but we have, we have a government in the UK at the moment whose position always seems to be, it's never our fault. Mm. It's always everybody else's fault. And that drives me nuts. You know, I'm, I'm, interested in social complexity and my government drives me nuts when it never seems to be there for they can never say yes we did this we take responsibility and now we're trying to put it right accepting that trying to put it right might also cause problems which they're still responsible for right so you could argue that this actually encourages an even greater level of kind of accountability and responsibility than than sort of denying the complexity well, I think actually I give one of those examples in, in the book of a previous UK uh, Prime Minister, Theresa May, who was asked why nurses were using food banks. And she said, oh, well, there are many complex reasons why people use um, food banks. And that for me is an example of exactly what you're worried about. We're mm. saying, oh, you know, social life is so complex. Who am I, the Prime Minister, to take responsibility for the fact that lots of people in my country are poor? 
well, that doesn't wash with me for a minute, not for a second. And that's yeah. a way of mobilizing complexity to avoid responsibility. And that's, not, that's certainly not my position at all. Right, right. But, but, but what, I, what I, I think the counter argument here is listening, listening to you is that especially in these re- reflective practices and when we're, we're faced with our own habits and how those might impact the group, and our and and the reality of our own agency around over our habits, and that could actually encourage a greater level of of responsibility. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. I mean, I think um, this complexity stuff can cut both ways, right? So, in some people, it, it can. Um, it can inspire a sense of fatalism. It's also complex. There's nothing I can do. But for other people, it um, it introduces a sense of liberation because they feel so responsible and they want to be a good manager or a good consultant, and yet things haven't worked out as they intended, and they feel somehow that it's them failing. Mm. When you explain that what happens happens because of what everybody is doing, and your contribution might be highly influential because you've got a senior role or because you uh, have a particular position in the organization or a particular responsibility. Nonetheless, even the most powerful people in the world can't control events. Not the president of the United States, not President Putin. Nobody can control events. It doesn't mean to say that you're not influential. It doesn't mean to say you're not responsible. But some people, for, that, for, for some people, that is both explanatory and relieving yeah yeah no and i did and that is that yes you're right it does cut both ways and it can provide comfort somehow yeah okay i'm part of a you know a bigger piece here um i can't control the weather right exactly so so in a sense i think it helps decenter the self the moment we so and that is the individual individualist narrative of the 21st century you know you are the architect of your own future if you're unsuccessful it's because you're not trying hard enough you've really got to double down how much do you really want this where you're not being successful because you don't really want it enough which is a complete betrayal of people i think that locating all that responsibility with individuals when there are bigger structural issues going on that, you know, why poor people remain poor, et cetera. So it's important really to think very carefully about the, what's known in sociology as the structure agency question. We are not powerless, but there are huge limits to our power. And one of the things I think we need to think about, what I'm pointing to in the end of the book is, um, the violence that we cause when we try to control an uncontrollable world or uncontrollable people. Yeah. 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 And is, so I guess what I'm, I'm seeking here, I mean, and that may be part of it is, is sort of a, a, a recognition of the danger of trying to control. But, but when it comes to this ethical question, and if we're talking about the, the philosophy, I suppose, behind complexity, where can we go to find guidance in what, what the right action ought to be inside of complexity? 
um, where we have to sit together and work it out in a consistent way. So I take my inspiration from Norbert Elias, who drew a distinction between our ability to detach from and think about nature as a way of controlling it for human good. I think that's probably gone too far that we exploit nature for human good, and that's causing the problems that we experience today with the biggest crisis facing the world, which is the climate crisis. But just keeping, just persisting with his thinking for now. So the enlightenment has enabled us to take a detached view towards nature, which has produced benefits and disbenefits. The disbenefits are now outweighing the benefits. But he compared and contrasted that with our ability to pay attention to our own involvement with each other, where we're still very underdeveloped in thinking about how we resolve our problems. So he was encouraging us to become more detached about our involvement with other human beings as a way of giving us the potential to behave better to one another and to develop as human beings, as, as human social beings. Right. So I would say in organizational life, that skill of paying attention to our relationships with each other is still very underdeveloped. Any numbers of tools and techniques and theories of leadership and this framework and that framework, but still we're underdeveloped in thinking about how we impact one another, the strong feelings that we provoke in one another, the unhelpful group dynamics that we unleash again and again in trying to deal with our problems. Organizations can be quite unhealthy places for people. Right, right. And and the only way to, so coming back to the ethical question, and, and you're suggesting that there's no, there's no doctrine that one can refer to that will help us understand what's unhealthy and healthy. The way to understand what's unhealthy and healthy in a particular context is, is through inquiry, is through group inquiry. And that will guide us in terms of, of, of the best action to make the environment healthier. We don't start with a blank sheet. We do have social norms. We have laws. We have moral codes. So we're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. Um, but we do need to inquire then whether those norms are still helpful, whether our moral codes are still helpful. And we do need to um, encourage plur- plurality of view. And then there's a question of, how plural do we want to be? Because yeah. some beliefs uh, about the world feel to me to be destructive. Yeah. Uh, and so, how do we engage with that? How do we how do we engage with people who deny things that are important to us, or deny facts about the world, which natural science may have a view on? So, for example, people who deny that climate change is happening or uh, say that it's a plot by China to undermine the West, or that COVID isn't a thing, it doesn't exist, it's fabricated. How do you, how do you encourage plurality of view and engage with that kind of difference is something I touch on in the book and does interest me greatly, but I do need to do more thinking about it before I write about it sensibly. 
So the pragmatist position, the pragmatist philosophical position is um, if we as a group can explore our differences and the broad spread of values that are present here, then we can make a better decision about how to go on together. But if in that group, no matter how big there are views which are 180 degrees opposite to your own, or even you feel are denialist of a shared world that we might have, how can we engage with that in a productive way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a, diff, yeah, it's, that's a, that's a, that's a question. I suppose that are not, there aren't a great deal of answers for, right. It doesn't seem to be, and I come to that comes back to your point about, perhaps being undeveloped as a, as a species in this area. Yeah, that, that's right. So, so I think there might be also a liberal fantasy that if we just talk, sit down and talk about our differences, then we can resolve them or find a good enough compromise to go on together. I think the last 10 years have demonstrated that, that that is not possible in some cases. So how do we go on with groups who have incommensurable views with our own, who may not even be prepared to talk to us? Right. And I think your example around the COVID situation is interesting, right? Because you do have a, a sizable minority of people who are on the bio-terrain theory aspect of this who deny germ theory, right? Mm. And then, of course, there is a very large majority of people who take germ theory as a given. And, and so, yeah, getting those people in a room <laughs> and finding a way to move forward together, is, it's not obvious how we do that. No, Absolutely. And it feels as though it's become worse in the last decade as well. So in the UK, we've had our own polarisation around Brexit mm. and our own kind of constant denialism. So ministers were going on the radio only yesterday saying that Brexit has been a huge benefit to the country and <laughs> saying things that I don't recognise in any world that I inhabit. So it's really interesting to know how we would find a way of going on together. Yeah. Yeah. But none, but it's almost like that's the moral imperative from a pragmatist perspective yeah. is to e find that way. E exactly that. Yeah. But it's, it's not easy and it may not be possible, but I suppose we have a responsibility to try. Right. And, and maybe in coming back to organizational life, perhaps there's an instinctive sort of recognition about how hard that is. And that's why we get that. Don't let's not go down that route. I don't want to open a can of worms. Let's not open it up. Exactly that. And is it just better to pretend that we're all on one page and that yeah. there isn't a significant minority of people who are 180 degrees opposed to, let's say this particular corporate objective yeah. or in society, a, a value. It, it, yeah. Exactly that. And in my own institution, the university, the universities have undergone radical changes in the last 30 years or so. <clears throat> And one way of thinking about a university for me would be to think of it as the kind of institutionalization of curiosity, whereas now I think they're commercial enterprises. Mm. So are we going to talk about students or are we going to talk about customers? Are we going to pile students high and sell them cheap or are we going to focus on inquiry and exploration and thinking. Are we trying to turn out good corporate citizens or are we trying to um, 
turn out people who can think and reflect who might want to sit at home and write poetry. So yeah. all of those things are in contention in the institution of which I'm a member. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I think about it and it, is there a risk that allowing for such plurality and full expression of these diverse views actually undermines that kind of the whole societal project, right? And is that perhaps the problem with democracy at a certain point is that it becomes too tolerant of, of a plurality of views to the point where, where we sort of exacerbate these differences and we allow them to be expressed and it gets very difficult for us to go on together as, as a cohesive whole. Yep. Well, that, that is certainly one of the, the pathologies of liberal democracy, although I'm still in favour of it. Because the alternative is suppression, isn't it? You, yeah, exactly. It is. You, you, yeah. you, stop, you stop people having views. And the most extreme example of that is North Korea, where people can't even speak to their friends and family for fear of being reported. Yeah. You're, only, you're only allowed one set of views. So what yeah. is it? I think another oh, seemed to be quoting Churchill all morning, but <laughs> democracy is the least worst option in, the, in a way. Yeah. 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 And well, you touched on, on this idea of complex authority. So what's, you know, what, what clues do we have from the study of complex, complexity around, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, maybe we might say effective authority in complexity? Well, I suppose I'm, I was exercised to deflate this massively overinflated discourse about leadership which is self-amplifying and I think creates a kind of dependency. So there are so many theories of leadership. Every time I think we've reached peak leadership, we haven't. <laughs> Somebody comes up with another theory about leadership. So in the book, what I really wanted to do was to deflate all of that and think about the exercise authority as a group ensemble performance. So I don't want to get into leaders and followers, but if people don't recognize your authority, you can't be a leader. Yeah. And it's not always the leader who's the authority in the group at any one moment. And going back to my friend Fuchs, who started the Institute of Group Analysis, he was interested in working with authority from a very different perspective. And he argued that, yes, when you're convening a therapeutic group or an experiential group, you do have a responsibility to help the group function. But once the group is functioning, you get out of the way. A mature group functions by itself, sometimes calling on the leader when in situations of crisis or, or whatever. But this kind of dependency that we've created, that there are special charismatic individuals who have a unique insight into the human condition is a complete fallacy and a fantasy and unhelpful to us, I think. Right. And, but, but, but what about the, you know, on the flip side of that, the, the value of the heroic leader, somebody who models a set of behaviors that we might uh, find to be, you know, compelling or, um, ethically correct and so we create i mean as to use one of the terms the, the, the social object of of this leader that we all engage with and interpret and 
it actually serves as a cohering function for the group. Is there not a case to be made that the heroic leader serves in that way? Yes. Uh, and it depends what you mean by heroism. So right. for Trump supporters in the United States, they see Trump as a symbol of strength. So their social object that they're looking for is one of dependency, somebody who takes care of us. I don't know whether you've seen some of these pictures that have been produced, either of Trump as Rambo. Oh, or, yeah. Or, or, or sometimes or the, w, the, the wrestler memes and so yeah. on. Yeah. Or, or Trump as Christ, even more disturbingly. And of course, different groups will have different social, uh, social objects that they value. And so an alternative social object would be Jacinda Ardern, for example, who has the qualities that Mead describes in leaders who are geniuses, which I think I mentioned in the book. Mm. So they, they have a unique ability to bring people into a different relationship with each other and themselves. And I suppose Trump is also doing that. But perhaps yeah. perhaps is appealing to those sides of our human nature, which are there, but which are based in a different assumption, different set of assumptions about how society should function and, and what's valuable. Yeah, I guess you could say that in the... It appeals to those with that you know, more liberal bias and Trump appeals to those with more of a conservative biases. Well, it's, it's also, I guess, um, it describes a different understanding of the importance of the group or of individuals as well. So I mm. think um, Ardern appeals more to the collective, to interdependency, and Trump appeals more to autonomy. Yeah, yeah. The, indiv the individual hero. Yeah. And I guess that comes back to the wind analogy, right? That, that, that the Trump wind is going to resonate with those people who value highly autonomy and, and sort of individual yep. strengths. And yep. the Hearn wind is going to resonate with those who yeah, value but even to watch, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Even to watch Trump, you can see it as an improvisation. So when you see mm. him in... in, in front of groups of people in the state's rallies. You can see the improvisation that's going on, how they amplify each other in terms of their understanding of this social object of authority in this situation. So it is still an ensemble performance. Yeah, and I think you saw that with some of his slogans, right? The locker up around him. I think that was one something improvised at a rally, got a big, okay, right, let's, let's keep going with that. And I think that was the way he worked with his rallies to hone his message, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but that's, that's a fascinating way of thinking about it. We tend to think, even the way I described it, was it, it was Trump kind of doing that. But in reality, there's, there's this interplay and these slogans emerged from the group. And it's just that Trump was a conduit of that emergence is another way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not located with him. Mm. It's located in a, a social tradition, if you like, which, which we may or may not value a collective identification to which he is appealing. Mm. Mm. So of course it's to do with him and the way he does it. It's obviously an individual, he is an individual manifestation of a social tendency and yeah. he speaks to it very well yeah. for that group. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that Jacinda does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But I guess, it, I guess, again, this points to there's no what what this. Uh, am I right that the pragmatist philosophy doesn't necessarily give us any clues as to is it better to follow Trump or is it better to follow just in the head? Right? It's it, they're just well, a, the pragmatist question is is always what's more helpful, uh, and there is a normative uh, core to pragmatism. I, I think they the key pragmatist philosophers do think it's better to be more democratic, to inquire, to explore, to accept our interdependencies. So they do have, they also have a, a moral position, if you like. Okay. 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 That's, that's yeah. That's they're, not, they're, they're not a group that thinks anything goes. <laughs> right. So the, 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 one of the key texts that we use on, on the doctorate management program is Mead's Mind, Self, and Society. And you can see the last third of that book is, is very much taking a, a normative position about what's, what's good for, this, for us as a society in order to develop. Right. Okay. And so then would you tend to find that these complexity ideas have more resonance with those organizations that where that worldview of interdependency and democracy is stronger? Not necessarily, I think. So the perspective we've developed, complex responsive process of relating, tries to be as descriptive as possible in the sense that it tries to give an account of, an explanation of how patterns in society arise. Now, those of us who put forward this perspective do have a moral point of view. But if you like, we're trying to leave that out as much as possible and just say, this is what we think is going on in society. This is how trends in society emerge. This is how different groups emerge. This is how different ideologies emerge. And then now it's up to you then to work with this and think about whether you think these are good things or bad things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, yeah. I have a moral position on lots of these, these issues, but what I'm trying to do is to be as helpful as possible for people, no matter what tendencies, ideologies they have, to take up the ideas as being helpful to them in their work. So that's, I suppose, where we're different from. We are a critical tradition, but we're not a cri cri critical tradition in the sense of critical management studies, which derives from the Frankfurt School post-Marxist. So, mm. so we're, not, we're not taking that position. But we are yeah. trying to be critical in the sense of thinking about how things arise and taking the position that things could have been otherwise. History is important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, we started the conversation about that. We're, like we're born into a family and yeah. 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 Um, and that idea from Heidegger of, of, of thrownness, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. We're projected into, uh, into a context. Yeah. And, and I think what might, might be useful here is just, just to think about, are there, are there any particular stories that you have of where, I mean, obviously we've got this story of where it didn't work out with the bullying, but have you got any particular stories of where you've observed people engaging in this, this reflective inquiry and, and, and where there have been some, some very positive outcomes? Um. So instead of thinking about positive outcomes, I would say um, there's a quality of robustness about groups who are used to doing this. Okay. 
jobs. So they, um, I, I'm reluctant to use the word resilient because it's taken up in such an individualistic way. So l- let's think about in terms of social resilience then. Yeah. I have worked with groups and I've come across groups. And I would say even the research community on the doctorate management program where people stay for three to four years, we have all kinds of shocks and surprises and difficulties that we've managed to survive because of the robustness of the group. And I see that happening in other organizations as well, whether they come across the ideas of complexity or not. It's not is nothing to do with taking complexity sciences seriously or thinking in this way. Some groups have a very good ability to focus on the relationships and the quality of conversation in a way which helps them endure uncertainty and the inevitable shocks of trying to get things done with other people. Yeah. Well, and that, that certainly challenges my experience on this show and the reading I've done of organizations that do have this, this focus on relationship and, and group process, if you like, right? Whether that be, I mean, I know you, you take some, some criticism, there's some criticism book about holacracy and sociocracy and so on, but that um, nonetheless, organizations that have this strong emphasis on 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 the group dynamic, let's say, yeah. it seem to be, seem to be, there seems to be a tendency of them being much more resilient as organizations. Um, when I think about the, the book from Ricardo Semler, Maverick, and he talks about his um, industrial conglomerate that he ran in Brazil and just went through economic shock after shock after shock, unscathed. Um, that that that's that seems to be a pattern there. That this focus on relationships and the group dynamic makes for better resiliency at the group level. Yeah. Um, that would be interesting. It would be interesting to see. Is there ever people studying that and like building a, you know, seeking to evidence that? I have no idea. I mean, people always ask me that question, by the way, you know, what's the evidence yeah. that this works? Yeah. And, and my response is to say, well, what works? All I'm, <laughs> all I'm saying is this is an explanation of what we think is already going on. This people yeah. are already doing this more or less consciously. And if you become a bit more conscious about what you're already doing to survive the shocks of every day, you might get better at it still. Yeah. And nothing lasts. Yeah. So a team may be excellent at surviving, being relatively robust and relatively resilient for a period of years, and then somebody leaves or something happens and the team no is no longer as it was. Yeah. So all things pass away. Yeah. And I guess the danger of going down that route of, of setting up a study and saying, oh, well, the, the, this this collection of com- companies who engaged in this type of group process you know, versus the average outperform through economic shocks, and then you're, you're, you're back into managerialism, right? You're trying to then say, oh, what Here's aspects the formula. of that yeah, yeah, of the group exactly. process can we abstract? To- e- exactly. So, so I, I uh, my, my boss, when he first started, he's become very familiar with what we do now and I think really likes what we do. But when we first when he first joined the organization at New, one of his questions to me was, um, why do you need all these expensive people in your team? 
to run the Doctor of Management program because there are other suitably qualified people in the business school who we could use for cheaper. By suitably qualified, he meant they have a PhD. Whereas actually my team, we've been working together, some of us, for 12 years. And we've gone through lots of difficulties in that time together. So we're certainly not harmonious in an idealized sense. We have all kinds of difficulties and disagreements and fall out with each other. But one what damn thing after another. <laughs> yeah, one damn thing after another. But what we've managed to do is to work with those difficulties and see it through. So what, we, what I have is a very robust team. And we are pretty good at working together, but won't last forever. And it's because of our history of being together that we're good, not because anybody's got a PhD. Yeah. So this, so if you think of the, his original position, which he doesn't hold now, the qualification for being in this team is having a PhD. That's not what's important at all. I mean, not obviously it's a qualification for the job, but there are other things that are much, much more important. Yeah. And it's interesting that as, as a reflection, you're saying that it's your history together, but that isn't necessarily going to make for a resilient team because I've been in, personally been in organizations where people have a long history and their positions have become even more fixed sure. and there's more text toxicity than I had sure. they had a shorter history. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah. So again, it's not about the history. It's the history of being able to deal with shocks. And disturbances. And, uh, yeah. Well, and the way that you've the way that you've dealt with it, it seems to yeah. me, the way that you've consciously paid attention mm. to presumably how that's impacted relationships, you know, and and how that's impacted the group dynamic and, and like yeah. brought conscious attention to that as you've gone through them. Yeah. And there's again, there, I'm not offering any guarantees. I'm not saying we'll always be able to do it. Yeah. All that I can say is we have been able to do it so far. Yeah. 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 And then, and so, and are you hesitant then? Because I, you know, I read examples in the book of how you you may approach workshops, but presumably you're hesitant to sort of bring out, you know, the the manual of you know ten tried and tested, you know, group inquiry <laughs> processes or something. Yep. It's just I, I am. Yep. Yeah. Which, of course, is what you want as a reader, or at least I want as a reader. There's a sure. little bit of, you know, wanted the appendix. Okay, you know, so how does Chris run these workshops? And, you know, how can I start doing it, right? But, you, yeah, that, that's not something that it would make sense for you to provide. Well, I suppose I'm, what I'm hoping is there are enough clues in there. So creating reflective space. Does that mean setting aside the first half an hour of every meeting in three, just to check in with each other and find out what's going on with people. So I did a piece of research around um, uh, six different universities in the UK commissioned by uh, one of the Quangos to inquire into transformational something or other leadership, I think. And I found that some teams are doing that every, uh, anyway. You know, people have their own... Um, processes which seem to me to be very productive so one group in particular said they checked in with each other with each other every monday morning first thing monday morning just for an hour talking about what they needed to talk about if somebody had a pressing problem they took priority yeah uh, to talk about making sense of what was going on for them seeking support from each other then they got on with their work so more reflective space um 
developing the practice of sitting a bit longer with uncertainty, um, paying attention to the quality of conversation, noticing the importance of history. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping, as I said, there are enough clues in the book, uh, enough examples for people to trigger the idea that maybe they're already doing some of these things and, and they should just do more of them or take them more seriously or make sure that they don't stop. Yeah. 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 No, that, that, that makes, that makes sense. And it, and it also comes back to this. Yeah. This paradox, I suppose it's a paradox about complexity cutting both ways, right? On the one hand, we can use a complexity as an escape. Oh, it's also complex. You know, who am I? I'm just, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, raindrop on the windscreen. We're like, what, what, what does it? What does it matter? And and then the other side of this is, no, no, I'm part of this. I'm there. There are no blueprints. There is no best practice. Yeah, it's it's about me finding a way to inquire, finding a way to look at complexity, understand it, pay. You know, choosing for myself where it makes sense to pay attention. Yeah, um, and, and again, and, you're and not. Take it you're on. not- you're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. So some people say, you know, I want to drop everything that I'm doing and work the way you're working. And I, I say to them, well, I'm working the way you're working. I'm just making different sense of it. So we will never drop these tools and techniques of organizational life because people feel secure with them. They're completely entrenched in the way people understand what they're doing. People will always do strategy. But when we do strategy, how might we do it? How might we pay attention to how we're doing it together to think about it differently, to notice it differently and become different people in the process of doing it? So there isn't an alternative, a complexity suite of tools and methods that will completely transform organizational life. What there is, is a way of noticing, paying attention, talking, valuing the quality of relationships, paying attention to how we talk about things in the sense that we make. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, maybe that's a great, that's a great place to, to, to end the conversation. Um, yeah. Um, that's as close as we're going to get to any kind of certainty. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. It's okay for me. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's kind of okay for me. Like I, I have to be completely honest with myself. Whilst I, I, I feel so compelled and drawn to this topic, it's, it's still uncomfortable for me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose there's the paradox of learning to be comfortable with your discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, good. Well, um, thank you for making me feel so uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it again sometime. Yeah. Look forward to it. No, this is, this is awesome. And I say, yeah, go get the book. Um, I know, uh, yeah, there's some wonderful stories in there. If you've been curious about complexity, um, this is a this is a great, uh, I guess, t- t- tour of, of of the ideas uh, ac- across these seven different um, topics. Um, so yeah, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll put, thanks we'll for put inviting a link to it. Um, and are you, is your program open for people to come? Yeah, in? definitely. Uh, still recruiting. Get their week. PhD. 
Yes, we recruited uh, people during the pandemic. It's an opportunity to spend three or four years paying attention to what you're doing at work, writing about it, thinking about it, discussing it with others. We run it as a group, as you'd expect. So there's lots of conversation. You won't be doing it on your own. You'll be be part of a small group and a large group. Yeah. And is it available for people online or is this an in-person? Well, obviously, we've been running online during the pandemic and we can still do it. Um, but in the end, it has to be an experiential program with people with bodies in a room. Okay. It's still contingent on even now. I've got a residential weekend coming up this weekend. People, some people are, are, have contracted COVID and can't come, so they have to join online. Mm. But, but it's so it's possible to run it online, but it's a lesser experience. Right. Right. Okay. So it's, it's a bodies in the room program. Bodies in the Room program. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thanks again. Uh, we'll, get, we'll, get those, we'll get the links to the program into the show notes as well as the book. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too. Thanks. So, cheers. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com dot com